Wait a second. This isn't your grandma's cancer show. Not your grandma's cancer show. Hi, I'm Tatum Duroc, and this is not your grandma's cancer show. Now, sometimes in cancer circles, there can be this focus on moving beyond cancer and being a survivor, but that isn't everyone's reality. So today, we're talking about life when there is no cure. And to do that, I have really awesome guests that I'm super excited to have here with me in the studio. Um, soon we'll be talking with Adam Laver, who has stage four lung cancer, and Cara Hoof, who was diagnosed with Lynch syndrome and bowel cancer. But right now, I have Marbelli's Bane in the studio right beside me. Hi. Hello. <laughs> so can I ask you, what was going on in your life when you were diagnosed? I was diagnosed just two days after I had ran a half marathon. And uh, at the same time, I was, well, now looking back, looking after my husband who had advanced bowel cancer. And at the time, he was terminal. So, and I was working and I was looking after my three children who were aged 10, 12 and 19 at the time. So life was super busy. Mm -hmm. You're running a marathon. A half marathon. You know what? Really? (laughs) (laughs) Once you're over five minutes, I consider it all a marathon. Um, And your husband was at that point diagnosed, was was terminal. Yes. Um, And how did you begin to wrap your mind around your diagnosis? Well, it was devastating because I I couldn't believe I had cancer because you've just run a half marathon. How could you have cancer at the same time? Um, But I had been having a lot of difficulties for about five years, going to the doctor all the time with different symptoms that were not picked up. Um, And then to also have to tell my children, you know, not only daddy is dying of cancer, but now mummy also has been diagnosed with cancer. Uh, that was the hardest conversation I've ever had to have with my children. And I really do not wish it on anyone to have to do that. Um, There was a lot of um, uh, soul searching and and I just wanted to shut everyone away at first. Mm. It was really difficult to to face the world with those news. And and I imagine... So how long... Was it between, you said your husband was terminal. Mm. How much longer did he live after that? So I was diagnosed on the 7th of October 2015 and he died on the 15th of January 2016. Just three months afterwards. And can you tell me a little bit about your cancer? So I have stage four neuroendocrine cancer that was found in my uh, small bowel and had metastasized to my liver and the lymph nodes in my abdominal cavity. Um, it's, a, it's a rare form of cancer, neuroendocrine cancer, and it's often um, misdiagnosed for many years. And often 
neuroendocrine cancer patients, by the time they are fully diagnosed, they are always stage four because so much time has passed between all the symptoms and they are always confused with uh, IBS or Crohn's Mm -hmm. disease or asthma. Uh, So I had all those diagnoses before I finally was diagnosed with cancer. Are you on treatment right now? Yes. So um, since I was diagnosed, I started, uh, I was put on a treatment that is on a monthly, it's every 28 days I have to have an injection that is a little bit like chemotherapy, but not quite chemotherapy. Okay. It's very difficult to explain because it, although it's, it's classed as chemo, it's not the traditional chemo that people understand. And uh, it's mostly a hormone suppressant to stop the tumours from continuing to spread and grow. Um, So uh, it mostly suppresses serotonin, which is the happy hormone that people know. I'm a very happy person. I was about to say, you're not someone that I can imagine your serotonin being I must have had really high levels of serotonin. Wow. (laughs) So yeah, so uh, serotonin is suppressed. That's the main hormone that's suppressed to stop the um, tumors from spreading and, and being active. Uh, and I have that every 28 days. And, and uh, is that something that is going to continue? That is going to continue. Well, there are different versions of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm on the second version of that. The first version didn't quite work with me. So I'm on the second version of that. And there's another line that can go after that. Um, but I'm not at that point yet. So, yeah, that's what I have. But I've also had four major surgeries or two major and two minor. And um, <clears throat> I have a 25 centimeter scar in my abdomen where they opened me up and did lots of things to me. Is that when they put the treatment inside you? No, that was a that's different a different one. one. That's called transarterial chemoembolization of the liver, taste for short. And they go in through your artery in your leg, uh, up straight into your liver, with a probe and a camera that injects tiny little beads, microscopic beads into each one of the tumor's uh, blood supply that delivers chemotherapy. Um, and I've, I've had that done twice. Mm-hmm. There's a possibility of a third one. And the idea with that is that it kills the blood supply of the tumors and hopefully eventually kills the tumors themselves. Yeah. And you, you went to the Shine Great Escape. I did. It was so much fun. Anyone listening to this, you have to sign out to the Escape. So Shine um, Cancer Support takes away roughly around 22 young adults with cancer in their 20s, 30s and 40s for four days of... Oh. <laughs> oh wow of wow yeah of workshops yeah it, all karaoke yes <laughs> and and you were in so there there's various different workshops but you were in one of the workshops called when there is no cure yes and um there were peals of laughter um when you guys came back and and shared yeah what what you had been talking about? Am I allowed to name names? Um, all the people who were there? Well, or? unless you know, if they if they haven't said, I would. No, I would maybe just, not. Yeah. Well, so the other two uh, women who were with me in this group, the Incurables, um, we were chatting. There were lots of tears, and we were all talking about funeral plans. One of them hadn't started to think about that, and I think 
coming to that helped her get her head around that, yeah, that was an important thing to do. And as we started talking about funeral plans, we all came up with the idea that we should all have like a, maybe like a reality TV show come up and uh, where we could either be something like come die with me or don't tell the corpse or maybe strictly come dying. So where we just basically score each other's funerals, you know, out, so out of 10. <laughs> <laughs> it's so a little competition. I was about to say, a competitive spirit coming yes. out there. Yes. Um, of grading each other's. Yeah. And we all had different ideas as to what we wanted our funerals to be. Mm-hmm. So I, I know what mine is going to be. So t- tell us what yours is going to be. Um, well, I'm going to have a David Bowie style uh, cremation so no no one is going to turn up to that there's no point uh, it's very expensive by the way don't do that uh, so you just go and your your body's cremated and that's fine and then mine is going to be a party 1980s themed disco mm-hmm. um, with karaoke and everyone has to wear an item of clothing in the colour orange because orange doesn't rhyme with anything <laughs> and by the time <laughs> by the time I'm Cremated, I'll be nothing. So nothing will rhyme with orange. <laughs> You've got this all thought through. Yeah. So you know, and no, you know, people are allowed to get up and talk about me or not talk about me or whatever they want to say, and uh, dance and enjoy themselves and have fun because that's what life is all about. And how was that experience of talking to other people at at the escape that? Did you find it a relief to be able to talk? Was it... Are there other people in your life that you feel that you could have had those conversations with in that way? Well, I only... I only inform my experience by what I've already lived through with my husband, who was not keen on talking about anything to do with death. Mm. And it was a complete taboo subject for him. So I had no idea what he wanted to do or what he wanted us to do when he died, for example, or how to approach death. So he was very much on the hoof, basically. I did everything just thinking that that's what he wanted me to do. And 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 in a way, I don't want my family and my friends to go through that. Mm. I want them to know exactly what I want. Uh, and, and knowing that what I want, they're going to be happy doing it. It, it was a lot of pain after you know not just because he died but also because i had no idea what he wanted um so it made it really difficult uh, yeah. so so that informed my idea of what i want for my own death or how i want to live my life until i die mm-hmm. um and i think um going to that group was good for me to share that with the others and for them to also share what they saw you know what death is is for them yeah. Um, uh, it was very supportive. We we didn't feel disheartened afterwards. We we felt really happy that we've had that opportunity to talk about it, and yeah. and I think it shouldn't be a taboo. We're all going to die. We all <laughs> have the risk of death the moment we were born. So not talking about it doesn't doesn't help anyone. And what i heard from what you said is that actually making these decisions is like an act of love yeah. um both of of your life and for your loved ones and your children yeah. so that they 
everyone's I imagine then um you've also given them an opening to talk to you about it yeah. as well yeah uh, I mean it's it doesn't I don't say it doesn't make it any easier it's still painful to have to sit there and talk to your children about when I die this is what I want to happen it is I'm not saying that it takes the pain away but it it stops being a taboo mm. and it gives them an opportunity to ask questions to say oh so this is how you want things done and how are we going to do that when when you are gone who's going to make those decisions and things like that so it's more about opening up the conversation it it doesn't make it any less easier right but i suppose there are conditions where those conversations get harder yeah. and when they're under a taboo or if they felt like they couldn't ask those mm. questions mm. it would always be hard but then mm. there's factors that can compound it yeah 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 So now Adam joins us in the studio. Hi. Hi guys. <laughs> And how has it been listening to Marbelli's? Oh, I opening brilliant. It's yeah, I I talk about my diagnosis a lot, but I don't often get the chance to hear of other people talk about theirs, especially when it's so similar to my own. So it's been yeah, it's been really good. Yeah. Hearing you talk openly and very rewarding. So you were diagnosed over two and a Two and a half years yes. ago now, yeah, it was March into April 2016. If you want, do you want me to go into how I was originally diagnosed? Yeah. Okay, so I was originally hospitalised through some breathing difficulties, completely um, cancer related had a narrowing of the windpipe, which was an infection. They took an x-ray of my windpipe, which just so happened to pick up the top of my chest as well. So I was in with the ENT team, the ear, nose and throat, and they didn't like a sign on my lung so they forwarded it on to the respiratory team fit and healthy 37 year old at the time cycled every day played football every week never smoked never had any kind of symptoms or anything but something appeared on the lung they didn't like the look of went to the respiratory team and they thought it was a tumor a very small one in the far reaches of the branches of the lung they wanted to rule everything out so they sent me for every scan going just to give me the benefit of the doubt but everything came back saying no it was cancer it had, at that point it had already spread to two places in my spine so i was straight into stage four lung cancer um it was D a dna mutation that triggered the cancer cells which can happen everyone's dna mutates over their lifespan just a very rare few then triggers cancer cells into activity and that's what happened to mine so for 18 months I was on a tablet medication called afatinib to deal with my non-small cell lung cancer. It's targeted medication treated like a force field around the tumor so it doesn't grow or spread, but it doesn't neutralize it or kill it off. Um but then even rarer for me um within my body I migrated from non-small cell from the lung to small cell in the liver which is the more aggressive strand. So at that point it was like okay we need to treat that rather than the lung. So I moved over to the standard IV chemo for six cycles which did its job it neutralized the liver nothing was showing up on the scan doesn't mean it isn't there just means that it's small enough not to be picked up on the scan so they were happy. The spine and the lung remained under control and stable. So we then moved on to radiotherapy just to do a bit of work on the lung and the spine areas which again proved successful for six for six weeks every day monday to friday going in for a radiotherapy session um at the end of the six six weeks of that it was a case of allowing me to recover 
Um, at that point, obviously the lung, uh, sorry, the liver isn't getting treated because it's showing as no signs. But then when I went back for my scan six weeks later, um, it taken over again and this is only now we're up to um yeah about six weeks ago now i had the results of that so basically what that means is that i can't remain treatment free the hope was that i'd get my scans and nothing would show and i'd go back getting scanned and go back getting scanned until it returned but it returned instantly and more aggressive than ever so my prognosis changed dramatically at that point which is where i am now I'm currently back on IV chemo and I had my scan yesterday and I'll get the results on Monday which will determine whether the chemo is working or if it's doing nothing for me and my options are getting treated by chemo to kill off what's going on in the liver but there's obviously only a limited time that that will work for me or if the chemo isn't working and the liver's continuing to grow then it's a case that it will just continue to grow until until it goes no further and that's where I am at the moment so this has been a a, I mean there's so many different stages that you have been through I mean you you dove right into being stage four but then you had a period of nothing showing on a scan in your I did at the end of the original cycles of chemo um of the IV chemo so yeah, this the IV chemo finished um, earlier this year, so I started just before Christmas. Went through the Christmas period having chemo four, six cycles, which was every three weeks, so 18 weeks later. I get not the all clear, but I get a scan that's showing no signs on my liver mm-hmm. and the other, the other original area is under control. So... But at no point over those two and a half years of going from a completely fit and healthy normal person working full time to two and a half years later, not working a day in my life and having constant treatment. Yeah. Cancer not being in my life to being in my life up until this point, which is where I am now, where on Monday I could be told that there's nothing else we can do for you. And that and yeah, and that's gone from that whole two and a half year window. Yeah, and I I think a lot of people don't necessarily um, are, are not so familiar with the different stages of that, and I think some of the terminology around that um, um, that you can be on long term treatment for a while, it can be managed for a while, but then you've you're now at the position that you're waiting for the the ultimate test result. Yeah, so I've. In my mind, it's always been a case of I've, because I'm a statistic anomaly for having this, I thought I'd be a statistic anomaly for not surviving it, but prolonging it for as long as possible. But I'm right down the middle for lung cancer. I was told that the medication I was on had an 18 month lifespan. It proved to be the case. I was told that it would shorten my lifespan. At this moment in time, it looks like it's going to prove to be the case. So at every stage, as much as I'd hoped that, oh, I would, I would be out of the statistics and I would prove them wrong, and I'll be on this medication for five, ten plus years. It hasn't proved to be the case. I've just followed the pattern of what a lung cancer patient would expect, right on that line. Um, so, so yeah, so that's that's where I'm at at the moment. And how is that 
waiting? How is this process of of Do you know what it's anticipating I, these results? It's I I put it to the back of my mind. People who know me will say that throughout the whole journey I've been positive and that's the only way I can be, so I'm not thinking about the worst case scenario. I'm just living my life to the full, even in these this small window that I've got. I'm just enjoying my life, surrounding it with friendship and love and and not focusing on what could be and the upsetting side of things. There was a beautiful post that you put up on your page um, about... Um I'm paraphrasing it. I'm sure you have it it word for word. I do because I wouldn't remember it. Because to me, it was just like a two-minute throwaway comment, but it touched a lot of people. I've had a love-hate relationship with social media and I didn't share my story for quite a while because I didn't know how to and I didn't know if I wanted to. But then when I started posting about being on chemo, I got such a response of people that wanted to say how brave I was or how inspiring they found me and to me that isn't what I want to hear because I'm just getting up and living my life but what I've challenged people is that if I inspire you what have I inspired you to do Mm. you don't need to go out and run marathons and you don't need to raise money for a charity on my behalf but if I've inspired you then show show yourself what you're inspired to do don't just say the words so go and do little things. Improve your life. Surround yourself by love. If you're unhappy for a reason that can make that you can change, and you can make yourself happy, then enjoy your life because I'm enjoying mine. At the end of the day, I I feel like I'm a young person. I'm certainly too young to die. I've got a five-year-old daughter. You know, I don't, and I certainly don't deserve this. But the reality is, if if you read a report, it will be a 39-year-old or a 40-year-old man passes away. That's not a young age. And my friends around me are the same age. Enjoy your life. You know, you're still young enough to enjoy it. So so if I've inspired you or if you think I'm brave, then just prove it to yourself how it's inspired you. Do something inspiring. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so there was a lot of posts going around. People have passed away recently. And a lot of things that have reported in the press or even just people's Facebook statuses is that they lost their battle to cancer or they lost their fight with cancer. We're not fighting cancer. We're living with it. You know, it's in us. We can't do anything about it. So basically what I said was, I will not lose my battle or fight with cancer as I'm not fighting or battling. I'm living and loving my life until there's no more life to live, just like everyone else. Everyone else's life will come to an end. And my point is, is love it until it does. We don't know when it will end. I'm not using the phrase that you could get run over a bus by tomorrow because I hate that. But <laughs> my point is, is that no one knows when they're going to die. Everyone is going to die. So just enjoy your life. Surround it by love. I haven't lost friends. I haven't changed my friendship group. But what I've done is I've changed the attitude towards that group and only done things that I want to do with them that I enjoy and they enjoy spending time with me and there's a lot of love there. The mm-hmm. family that I've got, the friends I've got are so close to me. They're even more close now than they were before. A lot of that's down to me. I've opened up and I've let them in, but I've let them in for things that are full of love. And bringing up my daughter is the most amazing thing, the most rewarding thing for me. Um, so, so it's been an easy transition to do that and that's 
what's made me as positive as I have been throughout this whole process. And if my life only lasts from diagnosis to end two, three, four, five years, it's going to be two, three, four, five years of the best years of my life because it's going to be full of love and it's going to be different to how it was before. Yeah. And how 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 is that for you hearing that, Marbellis? Well, it's, it's it's lovely, and and I agree very much with with Adam about um, you know as a cancer patient, I'm I don't get up in the morning and say, "Yay, I'm going to inspire some people," you know. I just get up and get on with life and enjoy it as much as I can because I still have life and what else is there that's it if you think there's something better out there then go out and find it don't just think it it you know the truth is there isn't it this is it this is life <laughs> just just get on with it um so yeah i very much agree with with adam um do you uh, wish that people did change that vocabulary around yeah because i'm definitely not a soldier i mean i'm a, i'm a pacifist yeah and uh, and the whole language of battle uh, fighting just doesn't do it for me uh it never did and uh, and i've already seen a very you know the the love of my life die of cancer and i tell you he he didn't lose any battle whatsoever and 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 as adam he was one of the most positive people you could have been around um the power of positivity alone doesn't cure you from illnesses but it does allow you to enjoy the life that you do have um and he was a very positive person so if there's anything i learned from from him mm-hmm. was that this is the life that we've been dealt yeah i wish it could be different but it isn't so i'm going to go out and enjoy it as much as i can and to welcome as many experiences as I can in my life from whoever mm. you know I'm I'm pleased to have met Adam today and and anyone who feels inspired by any of these just go out and do something different to 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 enjoy your life and for me to add to that i mean the common feeling it's only that i had even pre-diagnosis that if there was anything that happened in my life like what has happened now I would say that statistically within a group of friends, someone is going to get cancer at some point in their life. My stand would always be, well, give it to me because I don't want my loved ones hurt. I don't want my mum, my dad, uh, partner, my family, my brothers and sisters, friends. I don't want any of them to go through cancer. So if someone's got to have it, give it to me. And I know that 99% of the people that are close to me will feel the same and they'll say, Adam doesn't deserve this, give it to me. But I'm of that opinion... I'll, I'll deal with it. Throw it at me. And that's been from day one. That just it happened to be how it felt for, or how it f- felt. So that way, I've got it. I'll deal with it. And I am dealing with it. And people are like, well, what's happened in my life from beginning to end at this point? How do you even get out of bed of the morning? It's like, well, you've just got no choice. Just get <laughs> up and live your life. And and that that's it. It's like... You give it to me, and if that means that no one else in my life has to go through what I'm going through, then I'll take it on the chin. Mm -hmm. And that's where I'm at. I'll never understand what it's like for my wife to find out that their husband's got a cancer diagnosis. My parents are the nicest, most kind people that I know. 
they don't deserve to go through this and I'll never know what it's like for their son to be diagnosed with cancer but I certainly don't want to know what my parents is like to be diagnosed so again give it to me I'll deal with it they can be rest assured that I'm dealing with it in the best way possible and if that means statistically no one else gets it that they're close to or with then that's fine I, I will do that and that's not me being a martyr that's not me doing it because I feel like it's some sort of you know thing I I should take on it's just if someone's got to have it have it I don't deserve it I don't want it but if someone's got to have it I'd rather it be me than anybody else leave my loved ones alone and I'll crack on and so the cracking on mm. yes um you said about like that you get up because it is the morning right yeah. and because the day needs to be lived and things need to be done still um but like are there places or times that you feel um, renewed or re-energized or you feel, the, um, you know, stronger about living in that way? So, well, I certainly know that I get more um, um, pleasure out of pleasurable things. Mm -hmm. So, you know, whereas before going out for a meal, it was like the thing you did. Now going out for a meal, it's like, I am going to enjoy this. Because for a long time, I was in a hospital when I couldn't eat anything. So when I go out and I have food, I enjoy it. Mm -hmm. When I can drink, I drink it and I enjoy <laughs> it. But I enjoy every single bit of it. And I am, I, I, I don't know, I've done mindfulness in the past and I've done meditation in the past and that's the kind of thing living in that moment and enjoying it there and then because we don't know what is there tomorrow so that is the perspective that cancer has given me um, I started from the moment my husband was diagnosed and then following with me so that's how I've decided that I am going to take my life forward Is I'm enjoying this moment now today I'm not thinking about you know, in 30 seconds time, what's going to happen. Just enjoy the now, because really that is all we have, the now. Um, so, yes, I feel joy when, I, when I'm when i in the moment and, and mm -hmm. I enjoy that. And I don't know if it's cancer or if it was going to come at some point in my life, but that is what cancer has brought to me. And you do quite a lot of running. <laughs> I do a lot of running, but uh, that's, that's too keep the mind yeah. uh, healthy how 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 does that help well because when i go running i can't think about anything i just have to concentrate on you know the miles that i am going to do mm -hmm. uh, and and i have to get that mileage done uh, is there's a goal and i am a maybe i'm that kind of person i need to complete goals mm -hmm. and so when i go out and i got this you know whatever five miles six miles that i have to complete that's all i'm thinking about you know, how far have I gone? Am I going fast enough? Am I going slow enough or whatever? Um, so I have no nothing else to think about and I'm listening to music. Uh, so is it like a bit of time that just gives your mind a break? Yeah, complete break. Yeah, I, so you don't nothing. have to think about anything no. while you're doing it. You're, no. just, you're just there. Yeah, and I'm lucky that I live in a beautiful part of the world where the scenery is amazing and it's it's different every time I go out. So, so you, you live know, by the sea? I live by the sea, so I'm very lucky. And that also helps that, you know, 
this beautiful scenery, I, the sea changes every time, the light is different, or if I'm running in the woods, it's again different. So that also is, is it's just a break. It's just nothing. I don't have to think about the shopping or the kids or the cooking or mm-hmm. uh, anything. Just It's just running. And so it's, it's a bit of, I don't know, med- to meditation? Yeah, it sounds like a moving meditation. Yeah. And it is a way of very much making you present, but mm. it also seems like a little bit of... Um, so present that you don't have to think about no. anything else. And I'm also just listening to my body. So, you know, am I tired? Am I? Have I got the energy? Have I not got the energy? Are my legs hurting? Are my legs not hurting? So it's, mm-hmm. it's a very now thing. You, you you can't think about anything else but just the, the that moment in time. Yeah. And Adam, I know your mm. thing is uh, concert going. Yeah, so when I was diagnosed, I didn't focus on prognosis and how long I would be long how long I'd have left to live and everything but I had a couple of milestones in my life so when I diagnosed my daughter was two she was very young we haven't kept anything from her we've kept her in the loop throughout the stages and now she's getting to five and she's just gone to school her going to school was the one big milestone that I wanted to be around for and we achieved that just a couple of weeks ago which is amazing but the other thing that's been a constant in my life is my concert going um, I started going to gigs properly in the mid-90s, I was an indie boy. It's a blur, Oasis, Supergrass, Pulp, all of that lot. And I went to my first gig, in proper gig in 96, which was Black Grape with my mate Reese. And what started there was a life of just gig going. And I worked out that I was approaching 300 gigs. Um, and last week I've reached my 300th gig that I've been to, which equates to, I think it's 22 gigs a year every year for since 1996 wow. which is more than one a month every single month <laughs> for 12 years um which is amazing and um what it was it, as it was approaching 299 which was arctic monkeys at the o2 um i've decided that i wanted something special for 300 mm-hmm. and spiritualized who i loved as a band ladies and gentlemen we're floating spaces as huge album from the mid-90s one of the best ever um, and they've released a new album which is brilliant and they were playing a one-off London show full, full gospel choir behind Brock Orchestra, Wind Orchestra um, String Orchestra the whole works and just Jason Spaceman um, just playing the, super, uh, the spiritualized songs in the new album so I needed to get to that um, to make it 300 now the week leading up to that, so that gig was on the Friday. On the Tuesday, I was taken to hospital for a high temperature, which turned out to be the blood pressure and the pulse rate. What was up was down, and what should have been down was up. My platelets were down. My neutro blood levels, which they wanted at, at least one, are usually about 14, were 0.4. And basically, so I was on the sepsis ward, contracting sepsis which is life-threatening and the doctor at the time although I was feeling fine was talking about being out in 24 hours and then the next breath was asking if I needed to be resuscitated or not which was a big shock to me my parents were there um, and it just hit the reality that I could die at the click of the fingers that was on the Tuesday I was out on the Wednesday and I was at the gig on the Friday probably not recommended at all <laughs> but it was what I needed to do yeah. and that made it to gig 300 and the gig was as perfect as it could have been 
Um, and it was sitting next to my mate Reese that was back there. And it's been to about 90% of the gigs that I've been to. Um, so we've shared that life together. And I went to 301 just two days ago, um, which was again up in London. And I've got other ones booked up. If I'm willing enough to go, I'll go. And if I'm not, I'm not. Mm-hmm. It's okay. But yeah. And when you're at the gig, mm. like, is is it is your mind completely occupied by the music and where yeah. you are? Like, is that kind of your space? Like yeah, a I'm not type a cancer patient. I don't have cancer at that gig. I'm just like everyone else sitting there. Jarvis Cocker was four seats away from me, you know, and I'm not there thinking, okay, a little bit to go. It was more about, okay, this is a momentous occasion, the 300th, but it wasn't a 300th, I'm glad I've got it in before I died, or it's 300 because I've rushed it because I've got cancer. It was just a, a special gig that I went to. Yeah. Um, but it was just as special as probably 250 of the other ones. You know, I've been to very few rubbish ones. Um, yeah, so it's my space, my time. And I'm just a normal person, just a normal gig girl going there. So it sounds like that's that's a really important um, way to balance everything that you have going on, the reality of the situation, the reality of... Um, talking well, to yeah. your families about it and you said your daughter has brought up, been brought up knowing mm. um, but then there's also these times where you let yourself be free of having to carry that yeah. and just be we're just people we're just you know normal people mm-hmm. we just happen to have a disease that mm. you know that uh, in in for some people, it's treatable. For some, for for others, it isn't. And those are us here. We we there will be a point when they won't be able to treat us anymore. Um, but outside of that, we're still people with with wishes and desires and dreams. Those things don't go away. Mm-mm. They feel dashed when you are first told that what you have is cancer or that it's stage four yep. or that it's incurable. When all those words are coming, you're thinking. Everything is going down the drain. Right. But once you get used to, okay, this is the new reality. Mm-hmm. This is the new me. Uh, I have to find an, a new way of getting on with life because life doesn't stop. Then you find yourself deciding, yeah, but I still like doing these things. And if yep. you can't still do them, then do them. Mm-hmm. You know, all the better for it. And for really. me, especially with having the young daughter, there's a lot of... Um, pressure put on making memories having bucket lists creating little boxes of memories and I don't buy into that at all for me my memories having a cup of tea with my daughter mm-hmm. my day to day life is my memories and it will be her memories she remembers a time when I wasn't poorly she remembers a time when I'm on nasty medicine and she knows a time now that I'm not very well for me it it doesn't need to be about creating a specific memory because she needs to remember something special like going to Disneyland or doing something amazing. it's I want her to remember her dad as a normal dad with passions like my music and just remember those day-to-day things. And that's what I've been working on for the last two and a half, three years is her growing up, having those memories, having being the best dad I can be and when I'm not around anymore, only having good memories, but of them being normal memories, <laughs> memories that everyone else has. You know, there shouldn't be any pressure to create special memories because my friends who have no health issues or anything, they're not 
making memory boxes. They're not doing amazing things. They're just taking their kids to school. They're just living their life day by day. Right. And that's what and that's what I want to do. It may there may be not as much my life as theirs, but of the life that I've got, it's a normal life. And for my daughter, I'm a normal dad, and we will have normal memories together. We'll have special memories as well. We've got the photos to prove it. We've we've had days out, but that's not what it's all about. It's just about living a normal life. When normal becomes special. Normal always is special. It always should be. That's it's what always I mean. been special. Surround and like yourself it's, with love, but like and do loving things and enjoyable things, and your normal life will just be full of everything that's nice in the world. Don't fill it with hate. One of the things I'm teaching my daughter at the moment, and she stops herself when she goes to say it, is she doesn't hate anything. She even when she comes home, she's like, "I hate cucumber," and then she'll like, <laughs> she'll correct herself and she go, "I don't like it." And I said, "That's fine. As long as you try it and you don't like it, you don't have to have it." But she's ruling like hate out of her vocabulary at the age of, well, she hasn't turned five yet, so four. And to me, that is so important. If she grows up not hating anything, and just filling her life full of love, that's the message I want to leave with her, and and that's what I want her to take on from me. Yeah. Well, for me, it's important that my kids see normal life carrying on because, well, I hope they themselves don't have a cancer diagnosis in their life, but I also hope that when, if it does happen to them, they have an example to follow that is like, yeah, this has happened before in our lives, but life can carry on. Life doesn't come to an end because of it. I think we need to start thinking about cancer more a bit like, I'm not belittling it, I'm a cancer patient myself, but a bit more like diabetes or heart disease. or These are conditions that are going to be more and more prevalent in people's lives. Therefore, it needs to become more part of the normal conversation and more part of the normal life. People with cancer happen and they happen to have a life. Some choose to do it one way, some choose to do it a different way. Some can carry on work and some can't. But it's all part of a spectrum and it's all part of a normal thing that is going to continue to happen as time goes on. And speaking of um, life and things that have to happen, yes. you've got tickets to oh, go yes. to the V&A today. I have. So Marbellis is actually leaving us now. I am. Brilliant. Uh, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> what are you going to see there? Frida Kahlo, the exhibition. Oh, cool. oh, wonderful. Yeah, yeah. I've been waiting for three months to go and see it. <laughs> oh, three months wait. That's it. <laughs> so well, be... thank you for squeezing us in today. No, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Oh. A real, real pleasure. Thank oh, you. Thank you. Now we have Cara Hoof, who's joined us in the studio, and you've been listening to the conversation so far. I have indeed. It's been very interesting. It's always great to hear other people's stories and how they're dealing um, with life with cancer. Um, the one thing that really stood out to me was when Adam was just talking about memories, and it's one thing that 
my best friend and I spoke about quite a lot during the early days of when I was diagnosed, the hashtag making memories, because we just said we we didn't realise we were not making memories by just spending time together and doing the things that we used to do before. It's creating those memories. So you don't actually find many people that have that opinion, so it's really nice to hear it. Yeah, it's, it's such a strong opinion of mine with my group of friends and everything. It's like... We're just, we, we are making memories, we, you know, we're going down a pub or whatever. Why is, why is there a pressure as soon as you become diagnosed or you, you've been told that your life might not last as long as it should, that you instantly have to go out and make memories? And it's a social media world at the end of the day, so you either buy into it or you don't, and a lot of people do use a hashtag making memories when they're going on a holiday or something. But it's like, you don't go on holiday all the time. And you, it's it's fair enough, people do use it, yeah. like you say. Um but yeah, there's that pressure. It's like in some ways when I was diagnosed with cancer, what I wanted more than anything in the world was just to have a normal life. Yeah. And that would be, like you said, maybe sitting down with your daughter and having a cup of tea. It was like watching a movie with my friends or doing the things that I was able to do that we'd done for the past 30-odd years. And that normality was what I found comforting in those days at first when I was coming to terms with what I'd been diagnosed with. Mm-hmm. And how old were you when you were diagnosed? I was 32. Um, I was diagnosed um, with stage 3 bowel cancer um, after about a year of going back and forth um, to the doctors. Um, and at the time that I was diagnosed, um, I was also diagnosed with Lynch syndrome, which is a heredity form of bowel cancer. Um, unfortunately for me, my first lot of chemotherapy wasn't really working and after four sessions my tumour actually perforated in my bowel. So I then spent a month in hospital. I had um, surgery. I didn't recover or didn't tolerate the anaesthesia very well. Um, I was in HDU for quite a while after that recovering and I had a full systemic infection. I now know that my body doesn't actually tolerate surgery very well because that's happened on each occasion that I've been in. Um, so yeah, I was started, and at that point I was then put on um, mop-up, what should have been mop-up chemo according to my oncologist, and I had another, I think four or five rounds at that point, and I was, um, I remember being sat in her, I don't know, room, doctor's room, I don't know what you mm-hmm. call them, um, and she was saying, right, we're going to schedule a scan. Um, you finish your chemotherapy, um, but don't worry, we're not looking for cancer. And I remember having the conversation, well, surely I'm a cancer patient. You're always going to be looking for cancer. And she's like, oh, well, yeah, but I don't expect to find anything. Um, This is just a baseline scan that we can then monitor you going forward. Because obviously I've got hereditary cancer. I'll be, for however long I live, I will be in constant screening for the rest of my life for various different cancers. Um, So that was part of that as well as the normal screening that um, individuals have and I went for my scan and then I don't know I sometimes I have this way of managing to go to the most difficult appointments on my own um, unwittingly and I went back and they'd told me that they'd found um, some lesions on my liver at the time they thought they were cysts that had come about from the chemotherapy um, and that they would just watch and wait, but it just needed rubber stamping at the MDT. And then I went back a week later and they were like, no, it's cancer. And I had um, 12 plus lesions across both lobes of my liver. So it was quite a, a, 
a serious situation. But then at the same time, they'd been found quite early on, obviously, because I was already being treated for the original um, primary part of the cancer. Um, but it sort of everything changed at that point. Mm. I didn't really know what would happen going forward. I was put back on to chemotherapy to see whether they could shrink any of the mets because the, obviously the problem of having it in both sides of your liver is that you can't they can't just resect um it because it's everywhere so it'd be left somewhere else but eventually um my surgeon decided that because I was young that he would operate to remove two-thirds of my liver and then he would do an ablation on the other side to remove those mets and I am in the very fortunate position um, that that was successful. Um, the chemotherapy has worked so far. So at the moment, I'm in remission. So I finished the last lot of chemotherapy at the end of March, and I've had one scan, one scan, two scans since. Where are we now? Six months down the <laughs> line. Anyway, I'm still no evidence of disease. I've got another scan coming up this next month. So we'll just see what happens at that stage. So it is. So you started with stage three, yeah. And then when it went into your liver, stage four. Stage four, and then now you're. There's no evidence of disease. Yeah. Um. But I imagine this idea of a cure isn't like really in the picture in your, um, in your circumstance because of the genetic component. Genetic component, and I think. I've been thinking about this. I'm not sure that I can really come to terms with the idea of something being cured anyway when it's cancer with all the elements from my perspective. Um, I think even... I think I will always kind of live in the shadow of it. So there's an element of the fact that it was stage four disease and it wasn't quite severely into my lymph system and my vascular system. So the chance of reoccurring is very high. The number of lesions I had in my liver, that's what my surgeon discussed with me. Um, and then, so who knows? It, it could come back. I could live to 80 and not have anything reoccur from that primary um, cancer that I've had. But then, yeah, there's a genetic element. My lifetime risk for bowel cancer was increased to 80%, which I was completely unaware of, obviously. Um, and that in itself means that I still have that risk. I could get a second a second primary cancer in my bowel. Um, I'm at high risk to a lot of the gynecological cancers. So it's almost like I'll, it's always, it'll always be there for me. Mm. I can't even... I know that people often talk of a cure in the sense that they might have had an earlier stage cancer and chemotherapy has been successful, it's been taken out. Once they hit the five-year mark, that's it, done and dusted. I think just that high-risk element is kind of haunting yeah. um, in a sense, yeah. And you've got more potential surgery coming up to reduce the risk of the gynaecological? Yeah, so Lynch syndrome in females... Um, increases the risk of womb cancer and endometrial cancer, I think, the highest risk. Um, and that, can't think of the word, increases significantly as mm -hmm. you approach 40. Okay. Um, so it's recommended, yeah, that you consider to have prophylactic surgery, similar to people that carry the BRCA gene with breast cancer. Um, so I've spoken to doctors about a total hysterectomy and at what point that would be appropriate. Mm -hmm. um, 
obviously there are bigger considerations and conversations there because a lot of people would be advised to have it when you finish having your family or you've had children it's not whilst it's seen as high risk there's a balance between keeping your own hormones and putting you onto artificial so the doctors always want to manage that um i am single i'm on my own i don't have children whether i would want that now anyway i don't know so all of those things play into those conversations it's quite daunting having that as well as thinking I could potentially be facing more treatment for my original cancer as well and so we were talking a little bit about Marbelli's running your Mm -hmm. concert going um you are a a prolific walker like (laughs) ridiculous like off the scale um, I always say this is because I was brought by a marine. <laughs> I was marched across the country as a child. But yeah, I do a lot of walking. And I think the re- my recent things of walking has come out of the fact that I, prior to chemotherapy I or cancer, I was quite active. I did a lot of cycling. I used to go to the gym. And... As I was diagnosed, I didn't want to lose that side of myself, but medicine, surgeries, all kind of impede you being able to do certain yeah. things to level. So you kind of have to find ways to satisfy that. difficult. Yeah, yeah, it's really hard. Like you're, you cycle, or used to cycle, used didn't to you? Cycle. Yeah, because I did the London to Paris as yeah, well. Yeah, I um, cycled London to Paris, and then I also cycled Boston to New York, then like 10, 12 London to Brighton's. And then since my diagnosis, no cycling, I've got two bikes in the shed that are collecting cobwebs. Yeah. And it you kind of grieve that old oh, side. Oh, massively lost. What you do. So I I tried to keep going, but I'm stubborn, so I tried to keep going. I couldn't. Um, my mum used to take me on a daily airing when it got to the point where I couldn't walk that far. And literally walking down the street and round the block would have been like doing some kind of SAS signal to me because it was so... I found it so hard, but I've had periods where I haven't been on chemotherapy and I've gone out and been able to do more walking. Um, and I find it very therapeutic. It's that time where I'm just on my own and I can process what's happening in my life, whether it's cancer, these days work stresses, what's going on, you know, just everything. It kind of clears my thoughts. And as I've come off chemotherapy, I've just been doing a bit more and more obviously last year I was walking the Thames which I have yet to finish but I will get there um, and then I did the crazy thing at the end of chemo of deciding that I just wanted to hike um, 100 miles through Greenland amazing <laughs> 100 miles in how many days? 8 days That's with 18 odd kilos on my back so <laughs> completely out in the wilderness um, I went with a friend of mine and there, there were reasons why I did that. I'm, I loved traveling. I like exploring new places, being outside. And cancer put a hold to a lot of that. Um, I had to cancel a trip when I was first diagnosed, which obviously I was devastated. Was more devastated about that than the cancer, mm-hmm. I think. Um, so yeah, I just thought I've been given this opportunity. I might not be as fit as I used to be, but I kind of have that mental strength and I know that when I put my mind to something that I can get through it, 
even if it's really difficult mm-hmm. um, or slow. Um, yeah, so I booked flights and just went for it. I was like, I might not, this might be my window of opportunity and I don't want to lose it. It kind of reminded me a bit of Marbelli's kind of setting. Her, she sets her miles. Yeah. And like there's something about that and sort of putting putting a plan in place and then like listening to see whether or not that's going to... Yeah, and I think the important thing is, especially for people listening, is not to put your pressure on yourself about what other people are doing because I couldn't do what Marbelli's is doing even when I didn't have cancer. You've got to find what yeah, works totally. for you and within the sort of boundaries of what mm. you're able to do. Yeah. And and how how has it been finding friends that also have cancer? Like, what's that? Because both oh, of you have been on the escape as yeah, well. Yeah, for me, that's been the joining up with Shine, going on the escape, but making friends within the cancer world has been the best thing that's happened to me since my diagnosis. I've got friends and family that I haven't lost and I won't lose who have been with me since... My longest friend has been since I was four, so we're talking 35 years of friendship. I'll never lose him. But the friends I've got have become just as close because no-one understands cancer. I don't understand cancer. I've been in it two and a half years. I don't get it. You know, I'm just living it day by day. But what I can share and what I can... When I was in hospital recently... And throughout the two and a half years, I can just message my new friends and someone's been through it before and be like, don't worry about it. Platelets are 0.4. I've had that for five months. You know, I can still get out and about. And that just reassures me. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've lost people in that group, which is the toughest thing. But it's clear that it's surrounded by love, that the group is held together and it won't be broken and we'll turn up at each other's funerals or we'll turn up at each other's parties we'll turn up at each other's events and we'll share time together and we'll share stories together but ultimately they get it they're the ones that get it and without them in my life I would be completely lost and completely out in out in the wilderness not knowing what's going on Um, so to have that friendship group And the only thing we've got in common at the end of the day is that we've all got or had or experienced cancer. But then you find other things that you can talk about and other things that you can build the friendship on. And it's a a stronger group of friends that I've got for the last two and a half years that I've had through my whole life. And that, that will never leave me. And I tell them quite regularly how much, how important they are to me. And we share that love within the group. And it sounds a bit, as I'm saying it, it sounds a bit hippie-ish, a bit cultish, and I need to get across that shine and these things aren't cultish at all. It's just the, the, my normal life now, but I need these people in my life because if you ask anyone how you live through cancer, no, no one knows. No one knows how to deal with this. No one gets a guidebook when they're diagnosed. No. So you just got to find your feet, and if you're sharing those experiences with other people that have also found their feet, then it just helps you get through it. And you know what? Even if there was a guidebook, I don't know if I would follow it. Oh, no. Right? No, I'm like, not going, going through the guidebook. <laughs> I'm not going like, to read rather... a manual on it. It's, it's funny that you should say that because I, read, I did actually read a book called The Sea List um, when I was first diagnosed. Yeah. I just came across it. And the most interesting thing that resonated with me, which has 
nothing to do with cancer at all was that when she was diagnosed she went out and bought herself some really nice pillows for her bed and I was like oh my god I did that maybe that's a cancer <laughs> thing <laughs> um but I agree with everything that yeah. he's saying like the the escape kind of changed everything for me and it sounds really corny when you say that but I had been for quite a while I was really nervous about making friends or meeting people in a in the same situation as me um I suppose mostly it was people that had the same kind of cancer with me because I was like what if they're now incurable or terminal it's like I can't deal with that as trying to come to terms with my diagnosis and I suppose I kind of dipped my toes in a little bit um through social media and there's a there is a massive support through like the bowel cancer community there um and from there I made friends and it was actually another shine Sean that encouraged me to apply for the escape because he'd got so much from it is that my my Sean as well yeah yeah Yeah, brilliant um great guy I mean, I think Carmen always laughs because she thinks she should be paying him for the promotion he does for <laughs> Shine. But I mean, I think it happens to a lot of us when we've been mm. on the escape. You can't, like, even up to the day I was going, I was just like, I really don't know if this is going to be for me. But I was surprised by the, the friendships you make over a sh- such a short period of time, mm-hmm. really. You're the, is it three or four days? I can't yeah. even remember. Four but days, it's, it's yeah. not that long at all. And yet... I now have this small family almost that are just there, whatever. I mean, they're the people that if you get a bad diagnosis, they understand, you can laugh with them, you cry with them. They're just kind of there every step of the way because we all have different cancers, but there's so much that resonates for every cancer patient and somebody will have experienced, like you were saying, well, yeah. similar. Or... That's exactly how I felt. I didn't need new friends in my life. I had enough people around me. So I didn't. I was the same. I was apprehensive going to the escape. You know, I'm going to a room of 22 strangers where the only thing we've got in common is we've got cancer, and I haven't really dealt with it myself yet. So why am I putting myself in that environment? The trip down to Bournemouth was horrendous for me because I was just so nervous. Getting there, feeling, uh, feeling the connection instantly with the people there, and what Cara's touching on is, I mean, for me personally, lung cancer. Right, that's an old person's cancer that smoked all their life. Right, so I'm going to support groups where people are retirement age talking about how their grandchildren are affected by their diagnosis whilst they're Mm. coughing because they've smoked all their life. And very few, I mean, one or two of people I've met are non-smokers. And it is a fact. And there is some sort of, you know, feeling that every time I say I've got lung cancer, I have to follow it up with, and I've never smoked a cigarette in my life. I'm anti-smoking and I'm anti-drugs and yet I've got this so it can happen and of the age group it's so important because with with Shine it's 20s, 30s and 40s so it's people that are either trying to start a family and can no longer do so or trying to date um, or all of working age or have young families I've got people in the Shine group that I know that have got a very similar diagnosis to me they've got young children it's how we're dealing with that. It's how we're not going to see them grow up or get married. Um, and it's these things that we're sharing that you're not going to get from, well, for me personally, from a lung-specific support group. Right. And I and me being anti-smoking, I have to deal with it, but I kind of resent it, and I resent people that are in the place that I'm at through potentially a life... 
choice. You know, they've chosen to smoke for whatever reason. I, it's not a right feeling that I have, but it's something I have to come to terms with because I have specifically chosen to have a clean life, not clean in any way other than I choose not to smoke. <laughs> you know, that's not a hard decision to make. It's not very nice to do. But I've still ended up with lung cancer, so that's something that I, you know, I, I, I battle with. But within Shine, it's any cancer at any stage. It's just people that understand it and are of the same age as you. So you can enjoy going to concerts, but you can also share the downtimes of, you know, dealing with, with a family or not being able to have a family now. And those sort of things that can be shared. And it's so important because cancer is so common amongst you know the teenage cancer trust which is an amazing charity is so prominent out there uh, and cancer in older life is so prominent out there you look at the Macmillan adverts you know there's some really good ones at the moment where you know being a dad is still being a dad you know that really resonates with me it's important that they focus on this age group that we're in but what I get from shine is I get that personal touch of people know who I am and we can share that experience rather than the larger charities where they are there to help but they're to help everybody this 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 focuses on our needs and they're so individual to our age group it's so important that this charity exists and like I say I'd be lost without it and there's there's now a shine lifers group there is and do you it's know new, what isn't it? it's brand new um, and it's for people that have this terminal or incurable um, condition again any type of cancer that they find themselves in I, sh- I I didn't struggle with it at first I was straight to respond to the surveys but it was difficult for me because of what's going on with me at the moment it's like I need to deal with the reality that I might not be around in months and I'm not ready for that because I feel fit and healthy or re- relatively fit and healthy um, I'm not ready to perish away at any point but the reality is is that my body might not make that decision for me so I'm dealing with that at the same time this lifers group has come up and instantly there's 40 other people on there so it was a very quick transition where I'm like I'm not ready for this because I'm dealing with it myself and it's like well hang on a minute it's just another branch of shine there are people now that I can connect to specifically dealing with the same thing and that's what by talking today people like me who like just a few days ago even that needed to hear or be amongst people that are going through the same thing, if they're listening to this and going, do you know what, that guy is talking about what I'm feeling, but I haven't been able to have that conversation with anyone or haven't been able to share that, that's what this podcast is is there for. The reason I'm partaking in this is is so they can listen to me and if they get something from it. If one person is positively affected by what I'm saying, then that's that's my job done. So... And all Hopefully. of you have done such a like you're you're just the best guest. Yeah. Well, obviously, well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I really want to stay talking to you all, all day. Oh, we all talk too much, don't we? <laughs> well, yeah, we've already, we've already talked too much. Good job editing this out. <laughs> and uh, you actually said that you talk more post cancer than you did before. Oh, I do. I do. Yeah, me too. I was having this really? conversation with Definitely. someone at work today. I'm a chatter now. I could talk for Britain. <laughs> oh. and I don't think it all necessarily makes sense. And I'm more open about everything. Yeah. And I think I was a very shy person. And when I mean I was a shy person, I used to force my friends to walk into a bar before me or I wouldn't. I didn't like picking up the phone to make a reservation at a restaurant. Like, I'd force myself to, to right. do it. But 
I didn't find that very easy. And then I was diagnosed with cancer and you're in a life and death situation and if you don't advocate for yourself in some ways... That's like brilliant. It's, it's just, it's your life is in your hand. So yeah. you kind of have to speak up, even if that's speaking up about the symptoms you're feeling from chemotherapy so that you get the right additional mm. meds to go with it, whether you think your doctor's missed something, is there something you're worried about? And I think having to do that in the purely medical setting then opened me up and I found myself talking more about my emotions and just everything... And now I just talk. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I'm, I, I want you both back to talk some more. Well, I'm, I'm, just, I'm, I'm not that rude. I've always been a chatterbox, my parents <laughs> tell you that. And I've always kind of been in the front of the circle of friends organising things. Or I certainly feel like I do. They probably get annoyed at me for being like that. But, um, yeah, but that's increased beyond my diagnosis is I can talk more openly about things Um and yeah, like you say, you don't get to be quiet in the decisions that are being made about your life because if you stay quiet, they're not going to know what you're feeling or what answers you want. And if you don't get the answers, then you you can miss something. So what Cara's saying is exactly right. And it's really important on a serious note as well. And I think especially when you're coming to the point of dealing with something that's inoperable, incurable or terminal, that you are asking the right questions and you know about what your treatment is is going to get you um, so that you can make the choices that you want to make because people, not everybody wants to stay on treatment um, and they're difficult conversations to have um, but I think more and more people are being sort of living in a, this shadow of potentially dying a lot sooner than they thought they would do um, and it's not as, they're not sudden deaths like they used to be because medicine has moved mm -hmm. forward and you're kind of almost like this could happen to you but it could be weeks months years and I found I don't know if you found it now with the changing situation even when I got a clear scan people were like that's done they kind of brush it off as if I've recovered from a cold mm. um and I was like you don't just shake off cancer like that and I want to t I don't talk about dying I'm not planning I'm not at the stage where I'd be planning funerals and thinking about that but I've said I've got to come to terms with the fact that I might not live beyond 40 I might live till I'm 80 but when you try to talk to people about that they shut down they don't want to hear it because they think you're being pessimistic and it's like well it's just a reality and mm -hmm. I think Marble said earlier we all die at some point and we, we should be talking about it not necessarily in a morbid way just being open yeah well, we well we're we're beginning that today yeah. we're kind of putting yeah. some some words to some ideas around that because like yeah i think that that's the thing is that by being more open about these conversations we can release some of the pressure it's not going to make it easier but no. we can make it less hard yep yeah yeah yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Thank you so Thank much you for being for here. Us. And um, Adam, mm. keeping everything crossed for Monday. Thank you, yeah. Everything crossed. I mean, the reality is, the good news is is that the, uh, the chemo is doing some sort of good thing because if it's sending me into a sepsis ward, then there needs to be a positive out of that <laughs> as well. I can't actually believe you got over that in like three days. Well, yeah, 24 hours I was in and out. I won. I mean, that's what's great about some shine friends that have had this before. I won the sepsis 
in and out game. Well, yeah, yeah. You know, I don't want to win no more. Not that for we're that. competitive at Shine at no, all. But <laughs> so, so yeah, so way. Monday needs <laughs> needs to bear some good results. Yes. And I'm not thinking of the alternative, so okay. that's fine. Well, we're we're um, we're putting fingers crossed. Good yeah. vibes out good there. Crossed, legs crossed, eyes crossed, all, mm. <laughs> all the things crossed. Um, so if you want to find out more about Shine and the Shine Lifers group, you can go to the website, um, which is shinecancersupport.org. Um, also go to their Facebook page. You can drop us an email, find us a million different ways. Um, and if you have an idea for the show, um, something that you'd like to hear about, um, just enter us an email at info at shinecancersupport.org. Till next time, see you later. Bye.